Good evening. How are we doing? Good? Awesome. Well, let us begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we come before you this evening giving you praise and thanksgiving for all of the many blessings that you give to us in our lives, especially those that we don't always witness to and those that we don't always recognize. I pray that during this time you may help us see why we are in such need of redemption, why we needed your Son to become incarnate, to save us from ourselves, to save us from sin, to save us from eternal death. Be with us tonight as we embrace the mystery of our creation, the mystery of our redemption. We ask all these things in your Son's name, for he lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. In the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, what did we get last week? What did we talk about last week? Do you remember? Sin. Basically, yeah, we talked about sin. We talked about the fall of man. Um, so, in the fall of man, we really only got into two of the scripture passages of the ten that I had uh, kind of hoped to go through because they were just so engaging that I couldn't make it any further. So, today we're going to kind of continue that journey. Last week, we saw the fall of man. Um, today and next week, uh, or not next week, because we aren't meeting next week, remember, no class next week, because next week is fall break, so Father is going to fall away and break away, uh, so I'm taking the week off next week, I'm going to spend some time with my family, um, please keep us in your prayers next week, actually, um, next Thursday is the one-year anniversary of my dad's death, um, so I'm going to spend some time with my mom and with my siblings next week, so we won't have class next week, but we'll be back um, on October 20th, if I remember correctly, does that sound right? Uh, two weeks from today. So today we're going to talk a little bit about our need for redemption and the promise of redemption. And then when we come back after break, we're going to talk about the kerygma, the proclamation of the gospel. So last week we, we talked in depth about um, doubt and shame and fear and how that leads us to sin. Um, and then as we go through specifically the book of Genesis, we see all of these instances of that same pattern going through. We see what happened to Adam and Eve happening with Cain and Abel. We see what happened with them happening again with the people around Noah. We see it happening at the Tower of Babel. We see it happening even with Abram when he becomes Abraham when he has his first son and then he has his second son. First son, he was so afraid that he wouldn't be able to have a child with his wife Sarah that he is with his his handmaiden, Hagar, and he, they have a child together because Sarah is known as barren. Well, God promised Abraham what? I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sands of the seashore. Well, Lord, how is this going to happen if the woman that you've given to me as my wife is barren? So he doubted the Lord, and then he turned to Hagar, and Hagar had a child, Ishmael who, when we look um, through ancestry, is really believed by most people now, the line of the Canaanites, as well as the line of uh, many of the Islamic faith, is believed to go back to Ishmael. That's why when in society we talk about the Abraham religions, we talk about who? The Christians, the Jews, and the Muslims. Why? Because they all go back up to Father Abraham. And so, eventually, Sarah has a child. This child, Isaac, is this promised son that Abraham had really witnessed to, had been waiting for, had been longing for in his life. And then, what does the Lord do? The Lord puts him to the test. This is really the first time that we see in Scripture the Lord putting someone to the test. And he has Abraham and Isaac go up this mountain. And what happens up the mountain? He says hey, take your son up there, prepare this altar, sacrifice your only begotten son. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Only begotten son. Sacrifice your only son, who will be the person who is your heir. And so he's like, okay, Lord, I'm going to do this. And right before the dagger goes in, as most imagery shows it, what happens? The angel of the Lord comes and says, wait, 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 wait. Your faithfulness has been shown, has been proven. Here, go find this goat, ram, that's here in the thickets. It'll take the place of your son, and through your son, there will be many nations. So we hear many times of the fathers of faith. We hear of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? 
So we hear about their lineage through the book of Genesis. And when we go further, specifically looking at Jacob's children, this is where we get the 12 tribes of Israel. You hear about the 12 tribes, you hear about the 12 brothers. And what's interesting is in the midst of this is where we see for the first time, really, that we as humans aren't just flawed, aren't just failed, aren't just weak, but we need something more than just us. And so Joseph, the son, is sold into slavery. Remember the story? Sometimes they, we, we refer to it as Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat, or at least that's how Hollywood and um, Broadway want to portray the message. But basically, this Joseph was the favorite son of Jacob. And the brothers got jealous, so they thrown him into a cistern. Well, instead of killing him, what do they do? These Egyptians are passing by, and hey, let's sell him into slavery, right? But even in the midst of that, we can see the promise of salvation. Promised, as we spoke of four weeks ago, when we were talking about who God is in Genesis 15, in that first covenant between God and man, that same promise we can see melding through this story of Joseph, this son who was loved, who was favored not only by his father, but was favored by God. Sold into slavery, and what happens? He gets imprisoned. Why? Because he won't sleep with the Pharaoh's wife, right? So he's in prison, and he begins to interpret these dreams. And as he's interpreting these dreams, Pharaoh is having this terrifying dream and can't find anyone that can properly uh, interpret it. And so Joseph, having been known to interpret these other dreams, the guy goes to him, and he says, interpret this dream. He says, well, seven years you will have blessings of produce, and then you'll have a seven-year famine like nothing we've ever seen. So the Pharaoh then puts Joseph in charge of everything. You are second only to me. So this son, who has been sold into slavery, who was one of the 12 tribes of Israel, Jacob, is sold into slavery, and through his submission to God's will, by his faithfulness, never turned from his faith in God, And what did God do? God prospered him. God used him to bring the nations, the 12 tribes, the 12 brothers, eventually where? To Egypt. And in that whole story, and I highly encourage you reading really the last 10 chapters of Genesis, I realize that's a lot, but really reading from where Joseph is sold into slavery until um, really Jacob's funeral, everything in there, it is so packed with humanity, it's so packed with sin, but at the same time, it's so jam-packed with the promise of redemption, that through this sin of the brothers, Joseph was chosen, ironically, to save all of Egypt. Now, what's interesting is we know the rest of the story. We know what's going to happen next. After generations and generations and generations, what happens? Well, the Israelites, the descendants of Jacob, the 12 tribes, become enslaved. Why? Because it is easier to become enslaved than to actually pay off sometimes the debts that we have. And that's what they kind of go through at the beginning of the book of Exodus. And in Exodus is where we come to meet one of the guys that is known as the law. When we talk about the law in the Jewish text, we talk about the law in Hebrew scripture, in Scripture itself, who are we talking about? Moses. So that's important because later in Scripture, in the New Testament, when Jesus goes up the mountain and has the transfiguration, who appears? Moses and Elijah. Why is that? Because Moses gave us the law, and Elijah was the prophet. All of the law and the prophets are summed up in their journeys, in their mission. And Jesus is the fulfillment then of the law and the prophets. 
So it all kind of builds upon itself. The problem is many times we as Christians, as Catholics, we fast forward. We don't start with Genesis. We don't start with Exodus. We get bored in Leviticus, Numbers, bunch of rules and bunch of traditions. Deuteronomy, eh, a little bit better. But then we get really bogged down in sometimes the specific prophets. In fact, today's first reading at Mass was from the book of the prophet Jonah. And Jonah in today's first reading was so upset with God Why was he upset with God? Because the people of Nineveh were not worshiping God. And so Jonah had prophesied that because you are not worshiping God, the whole town of Nineveh is going to be destroyed just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Hellfire and brimstone. Bring it down, Lord. And what happens in the book of Jonah? The Lord says, yeah, that's not going to happen. And so Jonah becomes so enraged at God. Why? Not because... He was good, not because he prophesied wrong. He was mad because God didn't smite these 120,000 people. And we begin to see really in that story that we had in today's first reading at Mass where God's mercy comes from. In that story, he said, Jonah, why are you so mad? Yes, they didn't follow me. Yes, they don't believe in me. But there's 120,000 people here. You realize that, right? That's a lot of people in our time, let alone back generations ago. That's 120,000 people here. They can't, and I loved sometimes where God is kind of snarky at times. They can't tell their left hand from their right hand. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty condemning statement from the Lord. If I can't tell this from this, then I can't tell right from wrong. I can't tell good from evil. And we see this in our world today. We see this played out in politics. We see this played out in schools. We see this played out in law everywhere. That we think that because someone thinks something, preaches something, believes something, therefore it is true. But that's not what makes something true as we've been talking about this whole class. God objectively shows us truth. We many times either accept it reject it, or just ignore it and do whatever the heck we want to anyways, right? And so that was what Jonah was mad about. He didn't doubt God's power. He doubted God's faithfulness. And out of that, he fell into such a deep shame that he just wanted to die under a tree. And the Lord said, why do you want to die? What's going on? What's going on here? Why would you want to do this? And so he allowed the, the tree to sprout overnight and gave him great shade And so he repented and said, no, this is okay. It's really not that bad. And the next day, the tree dies. Now, don't we have that happen sometimes in our lives where everything, man, I'm just so pissed off. I finally got what I wanted. Why is it not what I needed? We fall into that trap, don't we? And so then he goes and says, Lord, come on, man. Stop messing with me. And sometimes we get into that same path ourselves where we feel like the Lord is just pushing our buttons, where he's just trying to lead us down a certain path, and we're like, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. Okay, fine. I'll go there. That was for me when I went to seminary. It it wasn't that I didn't hear the call as a child. For me, it was, I don't want to be a priest. I want to be a husband. I want to have millions of dollars. I want to be able to dictate my own schedule. I want to be able to be my own person. As a husband, as a father, I can do whatever I want to. Again, I was an 18-year-old moron. Keep that in mind. I couldn't tell my left hand from my right hand at that time. And so when I finally joined seminary, when I finally applied for seminary, for me, it wasn't this joyful moment. For me, I kind of went into it the same way Jonah did. I said, fine, Lord, I've tried things my way, and I keep falling on my face. I failed out of college because I didn't go to class. It's amazing how that works. Failed out of college. This wasn't going for me. I had to move back home. Fine. I give. I'll apply for seminary. If I get in, I get in. If not, leave me alone. How many times have we seen that same message played out in Scripture, specifically in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Scriptures, that we think that we put God to the test, and he's just going to give us what we think is best, right? No, very, 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 very wrong. <laughs> and so I got into seminary. And so my first re- re- reaction wasn't, yes, it was, ah, well, crap. Now what do I do? Well, I made this commitment to Archbishop Beltran at that time. And he said, now, Danny, when you join seminary, if you're accepted, I ask you one year. 
give it one year's time, that if you go in and we have this commitment with each other, I will guarantee you one year of seminary, guarantee me one year of staying there. And ironically, if it weren't for that conversation I had with Archbishop Beltran, I may not be ordained as a priest today. Because that first year of seminary was hell. Within two weeks of going to seminary, I had been encountered with what I call the third magisterium, or people that think they are holier than the Pope. We've met them before. We've been there before sometimes. Where we think we know more, and we know better than the Pope himself, and so we can dictate what is right and what is wrong. Again, we don't know our left hand from our right hand, right? But we think we know better than everybody. And I was told my second week in seminary, it was me and nine of the guys of this mind, and they said, Danny, tell us about your experience with God. I said, oh man, I had this amazing upbringing with God. I met God for the first time going into my freshman year in high school. Now I'm a cradle Catholic. I've been born into the faith. I've gone to RE classes. I burned myself on the glue sticks like all the kids do at one point because we made things and we learned facts. That was my relationship with God up through about ninth grade. And then in ninth grade, I went on this retreat, Catholic Heart Work Camp that I tried to have our kids go on this summer, but ended up being canceled. And at that retreat, my reason for going wasn't to find God, wasn't to have a relationship with God, wasn't even to meet girls. A ninth grader not trying to go on a retreat to meet girls, doesn't happen. I wanted to go to get away from my family because my dad had just made a decision for me that I thought was the worst decision that could possibly be made. Being a military brat, we moved around, and every two to three years, I was in a different school, had to make different friends. Ironically, looking back 25 years later, that's what's helped me be a good pastor. Because I move so often as a priest, I have to learn to latch on quick and let go just as fast. So it's hard sometimes because I don't have the friends or the family members that are around me like many of my parishioners do. How many of you guys went to school with the same kids from kindergarten on and went to your grandparents' house every week? Well, my grandparents lived in New York and California. And for most of my life, I've lived in Oklahoma when I wasn't living in Germany, Louisiana, or North Dakota. The closest I've lived to any relatives was my immediate family. Everyone else was 1,000 to 1,500 miles away. And so I finally got in with a good group of kids. I had been to school with them in third grade. I had been to school with them in sixth grade because the two years in between there, we moved again and came back. And then seventh and eighth grade, I had had four years with these same kids. I thought, oh, finally, I'm getting the normal kid experience. And then what happens? Dad goes to work at Bishop McGinnis. And I thought it was the worst thing that could have ever happened to me in my life. So much so that I started doubting my life. I started doubting my faith. I started asking the question, Lord, if I don't get anything I want in this life, why am I even here? I started cutting. I, I, I didn't see the positivity that was around me. I became depressed. Again, this was eighth grade and going into ninth grade. My dad said, you're going to go to Bishop McGinnis next year as a freshman. I said, <laughs> over my dead body. And looking back, I think I actually meant those words. So by the grace of God, he stepped in as he always does in our lives. And he promised me, whether I realized it or not, that it would all be okay. When I went on that retreat, the first night that we had mass, we went to a life teen mass. If you guys have, if we, had, we have life teen here occasionally. Well, life teen was started at St. Timothy's Catholic Church in Mesa, Arizona. Why do I know that? Because that's the church we went to that night. And at mass, our musician the guy that led worship, which I had never heard of those terms growing up, the guy that led worship, his name is Tom Booth. And if you've ever been to a Life Team Mass, really late 90s, early 2000s, you've heard his songs, I Will Choose Christ, Cry the Gospel. He was big in like Catholic pop culture, late 90s, early 2000s. And I'm there, and he's our cantor for Mass. I'm like, this is the coolest thing ever. And I was there with my youth group, and it was... 15 of us total, I think it was 12 kids and three adults or four adults, whatever it was, we all fit in a 15-passenger van and it was miserable in the van. That mass, that mass changed 
home that night, I remembered how the refrain went for six more months. Now keep in mind, this was 1999. iPods did not exist. iPhones did not exist. MPEGs may not have even existed at that point. We could barely download music onto CDs at that point. But this song was reverberating through my head. It was Psalm 23. But it was a specific version of Psalm 23 that to this day, 22 years later, if I wake up from a night terror, from a nightmare, if I'm, if I'm terrified and just have that gripping fear, I still go back to that refrain. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff give me comfort. And it was sung by a musician who was a Christian artist named Kathy Tricoli. But at that mass, and then at the, pre, at the following life teen class that we had, we put our arms around each other's, I wasn't a touchy-feely person back there, but, but like the whole swaying things, I felt like a hippie at that point, and we were kind of going back and forth, and we were singing the refrain over and over and over. I didn't realize that I was in the shadow of doubt. I didn't realize that I was in the shadow of death at that moment. Looking back, I can say, oh my gosh, Lord, holy cow, how amazing was that moment that the psalm that we use nine times out of ten at a funeral was me dying to myself that week. It was me dying to myself so that I could have the opportunity to ultimately rise with Christ. And in that week, again, I went to get away from my family, and God changed my life. When I went home that next Friday, we got, took a couple days to get back home because we went through um, Santa Fe and went to, um, I think it's the St. Joseph Chapel that has the spiral staircase. Ironically, looking back 22 years later, when I walked in this church back in February, I said, those are beautiful stations of the cross. I think I've seen those somewhere. They're models, the replicas of the one in that chapel from 22 years ago. It's like, Lord, now you're just showing off. But he continues to do that in our lives when we open ourselves up to seeing who he is and what the messages he's trying to show us. That yes, I was in the middle of sin. I went to confession that week for the first time in my life and meant it. I didn't just go in and say, well, I cussed and I lied to my parents. My room's a mess because it's still a mess. Thank God for housekeepers. <sighs> Thank you, Alma. But it was really one of those for the first time where I looked back at my life and recognized that I had done things wrong. I had recognized that I didn't want to do that wrong anymore. And to show you again the generation of when it was, at the end of the week, they gave us each a WWJD bracelet. What would Jesus do? And that was the big thing that year and the following year. So I wore that for about three years, washed it the best I could, and ended up with a horrible rash on my wrist. And then I finally took it off my senior year in high school. And you think, oh, senior year, you're going to take that off? Now you need that more that year, right? Well, I took it off and had this awesome, wicked suntan around it. And I looked at my wrist. And I saw my scar from when I used to cut. And I thought back and realized that in that shadow of death that I was in, the Lord stepped in, as the Lord stepped in in Jonah's life, as the Lord stepped in in the prodigal son's life, as the Lord steps in all throughout history. What would Jesus do? He would cover my wounds and tell me it'd be okay. And he'd do it without me even recognizing he did it. So when I took that off and I saw this, like, I, I broke down in tears. Because all these things that I had heard of in grade school for the first time in my life, began to make sense. It wasn't just something in this old book that's taken thousands of years to put together. It meant something. That the Lord truly does care about me in my life. When we look through Scripture, specifically Genesis, Exodus, and the Gospels, that's where I go to for most of my own personal catechesis, we see the story of the Israelite people. We see where we came from and where we went. We got to the promised land. And what did we do? We bitched the whole way there. 
right? We hear about after the Exodus, what happened like day two? Yeah, we aren't slaves anymore, but now we have nothing to eat and nothing to drink. Reminds me of a scene from Dumb and Dumber. We don't have any jobs. We don't have any money. Our pets' heads are falling off. Because that's kind of how they felt. I mean, that's a line from Dumb and Dumber, not the first one. But that's how they felt in the desert. Lord, you have duped me. I have allowed myself to be duped. You promised me that you would lead us to this promised land, that it would be flowing with milk and honey. And we're in the desert, running from our lives, for our lives, from the Egyptians. And we are walking with all of our possessions. They got chariots and horses. Really? What's going on here? And the Lord said, <laughs> just wait. Wait for it. Wait for it. The problem, though, is from the beginning of human history, we are some of the most impatient creatures in the world. We don't want to wait. We don't want to wait 30 years to make it through prayer of desolation as Mother Teresa did. We don't want to wait 40 years in the desert to get to the promised land and not be able to step into it as Moses wasn't able to step into it. We want everything we want right now, when we want it, how we want it, where we want it, and I want it now. Reminds me, I watch too many movies, I'll be the first to admit that. Reminds me of Veruca from the movie Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. The original, second one, that's not real. That didn't happen. Johnny Depp, sorry. But in that original, remember the story with her? She was the most spoiled person in history. I want the world. I want the whole world. And I want it now. I want it now, Daddy. <coughs> that even hurt my voice. But that's how we act so many times when it comes to the Lord. I want to know my path. I want to know it now. Gimme. And then he looks at us with compassion as the father in that story from the prodigal son a couple weeks ago. And he says to us two things kind of simultaneously. One, I love you. Two, bless your heart. Because again, many times we can't tell our left hand from our right hand. That we many times don't know what we're asking when we ask, we're asking the wrong question. Ultimately, the question that should guide every action and decision in our lives is, does this help me embrace God's love? Does this help me share God's love? Is there a better way to do it to embrace or share God's love? That's it. Every crossroads we get to, those are the questions to ask ourselves. And if at any time we can say that there's a better way to embrace God's love or share God's love, or no, I'm not actually embracing God's love and I'm not actually sharing God's love, whether we like it or not, we're given our answer. Many times, though, that's where we become like Jonah, under that tree. We say, I want my way, and if I don't get my way, even if it means 120,000 people being murdered, if I don't get my way, I would rather die. But the Lord is a Lord of mercy. He's a Lord of compassion. And he said this to us from day one to day now. And from day now to the end of days. His message hasn't changed. Our understanding of it changes over time because, well, sometimes we can tell our left hand from our right hand. But how many times have we as parents as grandparents, heard our little ones say no and given in to them because we'd rather them just be quiet. One of my favorite shows, this is sinful, but one of my favorite shows when I was going through college was the show Family Guy. You may have heard of it, you may have seen it. I don't recommend it. I stopped watching it a couple years ago because it's just, it's satirical, but it's also really crass. But Stewie, the football-headed character on the show, 
the way that he treats his mother Lois, from day one, he wants to murder her. I mean, like he makes all of these plans in his mind because he wants to get jumped back into the womb. I don't know why, but he thought it was so much better with the grass green on the other side, right? And at one point, he does what every kid does. Mom, 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 mama, 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 mommy, 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 mom, mom, what? I love you. And we've all experienced that, haven't we? We've all done that. And how many times do we do that to the Lord, but we don't say, I love you? We say, why didn't you give me what I wanted? We say, I know a better way than you do. Really? Do we, though? Do we truly know what is best for us? Have we asked ourselves that question, am I embracing God's love? I keep going back to that because every class that I'm going to teach from here until I die, it's going to have that in it. Because that's the secret of life. From the beginning of time until the end of time, the most important question that humanity asks is what? What isn't the question? But what is the most important question that we've always asked and will always continue to ask? Why? How many times do we get bogged down in the why? Why did the Big Bang happen? Why did God let bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen in the world? Why me? Why now? Why this way? Why my loved one? Why cancer? Why fill in the blank? And the crazy thing is the same answer is available for that question no matter what that fill in the blank is. And sometimes it just is like a dagger in the heart. Sometimes that answer is because I love you. And actually all the times the answer is because I love you. And so we may ask ourselves, wait a second, Father, <clears throat> Why would God give me or my loved one cancer? How does that show God's love? Well, what is our mission in this life, ultimately? Our mission in this life is to get to eternal life. We are each going to die, right? We can agree with that, right? We're all going to die at some point. I don't know, we talk about that a lot. I do it purposely. Because if that is not our end goal, death we will not reach eternal life. Let me say that again. If we don't die, we cannot go to heaven. On the flip side, from the beginning, Satan has gotten us to doubt that everything around us is not good enough or that everything around us is perfect. How many times have we looked back at, at past generations and said, why can't we be like it was back then? We hear about the golden generation, and we hear about all of these great things happening back then, right? But then we actually break down the back then, and we realize, ooh, yeah, prohibition wasn't really that good. <laughs> yeah. 1912 was not good for those people that went on Titanic. Why are they wanting to recreate the Titanic, by the way? Have you seen this in the news? Not only do they built the Titanic 2, they want to follow the same path. If that is not humanity, I don't know what is. What's the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing, repeatedly expecting a different result. Titanic 2, no thank you. It's funny, Leonardo DiCaprio came out and said, no, I'm just, no, no, not going to do it, not going to do it. Why, why, why? But again, ask the question, why? Why would you ever want to do something like that? To that question, it's not, God is love. No, that, that's a, humanity is dumb. Sometimes that is the answer. But also, that's because we aren't listening to the voice of God. God has shown us what we should do. But... We think better. God gave Moses this way to exit slavery. 
We complained, whined, bitched, and groaned the whole way through the desert. What does God do? He gives them manna from heaven, known as bread of the angels, to feed them in the morning and sends quail every single night, not just once, every single night to feed them and give them sustenance. Manna for breakfast, quail for dinner. Now, I, got, I, I, I can't lie, if I had the same meal for 40 years, I'd be a little obstinate. I mean, yes, I have cheeseburgers like five times a week, but that's not every meal for every day. So I can kind of understand some of that frustration, but then I also have to realize and remember that I have food in my belly. It may taste bland, but it's what I need, right? It gives me life. It sustains me. Moses goes up and gets these Ten Commandments, comes down the mountain, and is so upset at what he sees at the bottom of the mountain that he takes the tablets and throws them on the ground, and he has to go back up and do it again. Did you remember that from the story? That he had to actually get that twice? Why? Because he goes down and it's like, seriously, come on! You're going to build a golden calf? First of all, where'd the gold come from? Just saying. Second of all, why did you make a giant cow out of it? I don't understand. But goes back up and then he brings the, the commandments down. And Jesus tells us about these Ten Commandments, doesn't he? He says, the total of the law and the prophets, again, going back to Moses and Elijah, is summed up in these two commandments. If you don't know them by now, you haven't been paying attention. Love God, love neighbor. Love God, love neighbor. The problem, though, is even when the Ten Commandments are presented to us as children, we don't see them as formative. We don't see them as charitable. We don't see them as loving. You know what the most common word that's associated with the Ten Commandments is? Restrictive. Mandates. Rules. Well, God is ultimately saying, I want you to embrace my love. I want you to love me first so that I can love you and you can know what it means to be loved. And once you know what it means to be loved, I want you to share that love with everybody in your life. So why are the first three commandments about loving God? Because if we don't understand his love, we can't truly and authentically love anyone else. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Keep holy the Sabbath. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. How many times has taking the name of the Lord in vain become second nature? Growing up, like, that was taboo on TV. Now you can't turn on the radio without hearing it. And it comes out of our mouths, and it comes out of our kids' mouths, second nature. Same thing with cursing. Remember those words that we were told as kids to be slapped or you'd have to eat soap for? Man, I want those parents back. Because we'd have bubble baths everywhere because everyone would be bubbling out all the soap. Because we can't control ourselves. <clears throat> Excuses. Oh, but Father, it's become a habit. You know what also has become a habit? Virtue. It's a learned good habit. Vices, yes, they are habits, but they can be broken. We just have to be intentional about it. Oh, but Father, that takes way too much work. I agree, it does take way too much work. But if I didn't start it in the first place, it wouldn't take quite as much to get out of it. That's why our parents give us lessons of discipline as children. To me, the sign of a good parent, and this is going to sound horrible to some people, the sign of a good parent is if by the age of 14, your child has said to you at least once, I hate you. That sounds kind of twisted, doesn't it? But how many times by the age of 14 have we said that to God? And he's the best parent there is. 
Because he loves us unconditionally, wants the best for us, shows us what we need, and no matter how badly we treat him, he's always there for us. But how many times have we been like Jim Jim Carrey's character in Bruce Almighty? If you haven't seen that movie, I highly recommend it. It's cheesy as all get out. But the rant that he has towards God in the beginning of it, to the revelations that he has at the end of the movie, are are momentous. Smite me, almighty smiter! I am like an ant, and you, God, are like the kid with a magnifying glass trying to burn me alive. Towards the end of the movie, what's this narrative? Be the miracle. If you don't see the miracle, be the miracle. He went through a conversion. And what's great with that movie is it was a religious movie made by Hollywood that taught a good lesson. Now, there are some inappropriate moments between him and Steve Carell's character. Yes, I'll give you that. Some language that shouldn't have happened, some things that happened with Jennifer Aniston's bosoms that shouldn't have happened, but the message is important. Because he went from hating God, as every child hates their parents at one point, to recognizing that God wants the best for him. So much so that God gave him the ability to be God for one week, for one town, and the whole town was on fire. Really? You know what's best? (laughs) Have at it. That's what the Lord did for me, and he does for each and every one of us when he gives us our free will. I want you to be happy. I want you to be in love. I want you to be at peace. I want you to experience joy. But I'm not going to force you. You have to choose your actions. That's why as parents, our ability to demonstrate discipline to our kids, not just in disciplining them, but in being disciplined ourselves, helps us to show them the love of the Father. I still, as a 36-year-old priest, struggle with discipline. If I did not have Amy and Katie in the office... I would not be a good priest. (laughs) I am type B. I'm extroverted. I'm ADHD. I am all over the place. If it weren't for them, nothing would get done around here. They keep me on task. You should see parish council when they don't talk, because I'm talking the whole time, Terry. Yeah, it's true. I'm just waiting for them to be like, Father, soapbox was 35 minutes ago. Can we wrap this up? But they let me go. Amy and Katie are like, Father, we got stuff to do, let's go. I don't have time for this. And I appreciate that. Why? Because I need more discipline. I'm not coming to you and saying, I want all of the evil emails that are mad about Father doing this or this or that. That's not what I'm asking for. What I'm saying is, discipline is not a bad thing. I was never once spanked as a kid. Not once. Some people prefer to spank. For me, I struggled with my relationship with God growing up, ironically, I think because I wasn't spanked. And I get to why in a second. The worst thing my dad could ever tell me wasn't that he didn't love me, wasn't that he hated me, it was that he was disappointed. My biggest struggle with God as a young adult was I didn't want to disappoint God. My biggest fear, going again back to that doubt in the garden, my biggest fear was that I would disappoint God and do something so that he wouldn't love me. Not only wouldn't he love me, he couldn't love me. Anybody else like that? Don't raise your hands. But I know I'm not the only one. And that many times is where our self-destructive behavior comes in because we convince ourselves that we're not worthy of being loved. We convince ourselves that we are not good. Now that for me, was, that was my journey. But then I utilized that to torture my sister because, well, I'm a boy. You have two boys and a girl growing up, sorry to be the girl. For us, we'd always get either grounded or timeouts. Timeouts, for a kid that doesn't like to be 
a disappointment to people, a timeout is the best thing you can ever do. Because I had to go over to the corner. I'm an extrovert, remember? I had to go over to the corner and stand there like this for five minutes. Five hours later, it wasn't five hours, five minutes. Five hours later, I would do anything to never get in trouble ever again. So much so that I got in trouble more and more and more. To the point where I, I, I just picked on my sister mercilessly because, again, as a boy, we don't learn lessons. We're kind of not telling our left from our right hand sometimes. And I thought, if it's bad for me to be in a timeout and you're making me mad, young lady, you've got a five-minute timeout. <laughs> Sorry, Jennifer. <clears throat> but those are the things that we learn. We learn our relationship with God by our relationship with our parents. That's why it's important for me to have this class at the same time that they're in class. I know many parents aren't in here tonight, but I know many of you guys are parents or grandparents, and the reason your kids are in class or are in church is because you're here. That's why it's important for me for you guys to be here. Even if you're coming online, I want you to be here to show your kids that your faith is important. Because if you don't, they'll never know. We have to pray with them. We have to pray for them. We have to show them the love of the Father, but that means we have to witness it first in our own lives. I talk so much about love that you guys have to think that I grew up in the 60s. I didn't. My dad did. Boy, did he. But I didn't learn that unconditional love from my dad. Not that he didn't love me, because he did. He was the best father he could be. I was just a spoiled kid that didn't know my left from my right hand. But how many times do we have our kids and they tell us no and we give in? God doesn't do it once. God doesn't give in. He lets us make our decisions, but that's where we learn that every action has a consequence, right? If you study for a final, what's the perceived benefit of studying for a final? You're gonna do decently well, right? If you don't study for that final, what's probably gonna happen? probably not going to do so well, right? Action, consequence. If I pray, I'm dedicating time to God. I get nothing out of it. You're putting something before yourself. But God never speaks to me. But do you hear the voice of God? Well, no, I don't. Really? God's never spoken to you? Now, I don't know about you, but for me, I was a lot like, I grew up Genesis, Exodus. I was waiting for my burning in the bush moment to the point where in seminary we had a seven-day silent retreat and my prayer that week was to hear the voice of God. All I wanted to hear was, this is the voice of God. That was it. Like someone could have snuck in and, this is the voice of God. I believe! It would have been perfect. Never got it. But that doesn't mean God didn't speak to me. In fact, for two and a half years after that retreat, I kid you not, every day that I was struggling, every bad day that I had, every time that I went to the Lord in prayer, I got my answer within six hours. At mass, in the readings, in the homily, or when we were praying the liturgy of the hours. For two and a half years. It makes sense, doesn't it? What do we call this? Scripture. Yes, it's Scripture. What do we call it? It's the Word of God. This is where the Lord speaks to us. But if we don't engage it, it's going to be like learning another language. That we have to see in the midst of these stories where God's trying to speak to us. Every reading that we hear when we come to Mass God is trying to give us his love. Even in the most menial, boring readings we have, when sometimes I look at this like, Lord, you gave me three readings. I can't preach on any of them. What are you doing? Why did you put these together in the lectionary together? But then every time without a fail, it comes to me. And sometimes it's preaching that I can't preach, ironically. But sometimes, in the most difficult readings, I see myself. 
In fact, one of my favorite gospels we read a couple weeks ago, we're going to read again Christmas Eve. It is my favorite gospel for multiple reasons. One of them is because I'm a glutton for punishment for myself and for my deacons. Don't have any deacons, so it's going to be me. Because it's the gospel where we talk about the generations (laughs) from Adam to Jesus. The 42 generations, so-and-so who begot so-and-so who begot so-and-so who begot so-and-so who begot so-and-so, can sound like the most boring gospel ever. To me, though, it's one of the most beautiful ones we have. And I'll bring this up in the homily when we get there, but for me, the beauty in there lies in the sinfulness. There's an adulterer, there's a rapist, there's a murderer. There's all of these sinners in there. Yet God qualified those people to be in this line that leads to Joseph and Mary. God never stopped loving them. God still used them and put them in the right places. King David, this great king who wrote the Psalms and many of the things we have in Scripture, he murdered his wife's husband so he could marry her. We don't normally have that on the byline for Scripture. But he struggled in his own relationship with God. And we'll talk about that when we get to the class where we're talking specifically on prayer. But I bring all of this up ultimately to show that last week we talked about sin, right? We talked about the fall of man. God has promised each and every one of us that we will be redeemed from sin. Not by ourselves, but by his son. In the story of Isaac, that's, we get a premonition of that. That the only son to be sacrificed, no, I don't do human sacrifice. And then he goes and finds his goat. And then generations later, he sacrifices himself as the lamb. As the sacrificial lamb led to the slaughter. As the scapegoat for our sins. We'll get into some of that specific language in our next class, not next week, the week after. If you get a chance between now and then, Jesus and the Jewish roots of the Eucharist, I highly recommend it. If you've never heard of it, never read it. I mentioned it probably about three classes so far. Uh, It's written by Brant Petrie. It really unlocks the secrets, as it says in the front, it unlocks the secrets of the Last Supper. Basically, it shows us why everything from the Passover leads to Christ's sacrifice. It is one of the most beautifully eloquent, poetic things I have ever read that gets to the heart of why Jesus is called the unblemished lamb, why it's the Last Supper, the things that they go through, the blood of the lamb, that the blood, it's just so beautiful. And we'll get into that next time when we talk about the charisma and the proclamation of the faith. What questions? We've got about five minutes left because it's always that way. What questions do we have? And I don't have the Schneebergers here. I don't have Beth here either. Keep, by the way, keep Leon and Beth in your prayers, please. Um, Leon had to have surgery this evening or yesterday. What questions about sinfulness, life, retribution, love, loss, longing, anxiety? Just throwing things out there now. Thanks, Teresa. (laughs) Give me one question, and it can't be about my steak being cooked well done. So what Teresa was saying, for those that are online, what Teresa was saying was, growing up, just times have changed throughout the last, really, 100 years or so, from where we were very obedient. Um, Ironically, though, when we look back, we really weren't obedient. Ironically, when we look back, we didn't say no, but we also didn't really say yes. 
We just, we showed up. Yeah, so we did, but we did so begrudgingly. And ironically, that is part of the struggle that we have now is because we are in an outspoken world now where everything is out there. Because social media, something happens one day and everybody knows about it minutes later. I mean, that, that, that happened with a football coach just the other day and it's all over national news. That, oh, he, he got his hand, blah, blah, blah. Okay, he's a sinner, yes. I'm not saying that what he did was right, because it's not. But why are we praying for him? Because that's really our role, isn't it? We are called to pray for sinners. Or, or did I miss something in that? Because as kids, we were taught, I was taught, judge not lest you be judged. Pray for your enemies. Love your enemies. And we showed up and checked the boxes and read the Baltimore Catechism and even memorized questions one through whatever it is. That's not my generation, that's, but that was my grandma's generation. They memorized the questions, memorized the answers. I, I struggle to call that obedience, though. Because it's obedience without asking the question, why? Why is God love? Why did he send his son? And, and that, that could just be my own curiosity. I, to this day, have said, my first question to God when I get on the other side of the pearly gates is going to be, Why? And say, why what, Danny? Uh-huh. Why everything? Why do you love us? Why did you create us? Why did you allow us to make these mistakes knowing that we don't know how to tell our left hand from our right hand? Knowing that we are not able to make good decisions sometimes. Why did you love me so much that you allowed me to fall away from the church? Why did you love me so much that you allowed me to make these decisions that were harmful to myself? I don't understand that but I know that you always love me, and that's what I have to keep coming back to. I know the that, I don't know the why. Why does famine happen? Why do tornadoes happen? Why did COVID happen? Why does cancer happen? I don't have an answer for any of those, except that God has a purpose through them. I'll tell one quick story that's not really a quick story uh, for these last minute and a half. Um, and I really came into contact with this my third year as a priest when I was at uh, St. Robert Bellarmine. And there was a lady that was on her deathbed, and I may have told the story before, on her deathbed, I think she was 81, 82 years old, she'd never been baptized. So they called me to the house to anoint her. She said, well, I've never been baptized. Okay, well, let me baptize you first. By the way, I can only baptize you Catholic, is that okay? I'm here, got a rosary, let's do it. All right, so I baptized her. She had been bedridden for three weeks, hadn't eaten in six days. In church worlds, that's, she's on the way out. I expected, because I was on a Tuesday night when I was heading out to Jones to do Mass, I was, headed by, I was expecting by Saturday I'd get the phone call that she passed. Saturday night she showed up at Mass. She showed up at Mass. Her family said an hour after you left, she got up of her own accord, went to the kitchen, made herself a bologna and cheese sandwich, and came and sat on the couch, ate her sandwich, and watched TV. And I said, Huh? And she did the same thing for the next six months. Her last month, or her, la her last trip, she went to Vegas. She, she was a big gambler. She loved to go to Vegas and play the horses. And so she got to go play blackjack at, the, at, the, at, at whatever casino she was at in Vegas. Came home on Monday. I was out of town. And her last words were, where's Father Daniel? And tell him I found God. <laughs> Why was grandma sick? Why was she on her deathbed? To teach me and everyone around her that she lived her death. Why does sickness happen? Because we don't have to allow it to take us over, we can take it over. How do we live out those horrible moments? She lived her death to the full. She went to Vegas two days before she died, cause she could. Came home and died in peace. That's my goal, not to go to Vegas, cause I always lose all my money when I go there. But my goal is to live my life to the full, get everything that I need to be said, said, do everything I need to be done, and get it done, go to bed and not wake up. I would love to go that way. I just don't think it's going to happen that peacefully. And that's okay. That no matter how God calls me to heaven, my hope is that he just does. 
And that many times is the point that we miss in the beauty of death. It's going to happen to us all. We can run from it or we can race toward it. No matter which path we choose, we can choose to be in peace. We can choose to embrace hope. We can choose to love till the end. Or we can be crotchety. We can be grumpy. We can complain. Why me? Both of them are options. Why do more of us choose the second one than the first one? Doubt, fear, shame. Don't define yourself by your sins. Embrace God's love and allow him to bring you peace. Let us pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we give praise and thanksgiving to you for this day, for all of our family and our friends who can be here and who can't be here. We pray that you may watch over them, that you may bless them, that you may bring peace, love, and compassion in their hearts, that you may shower your grace and your mercy upon those who are here and those who are with us digitally, that you may ultimately bless us until the day that you call us home. We ask all these things in your son's name, for he lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. See you guys.